I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. I'm saying we got a great country here. We gotta keep it that way. Captain Wild Wayne Kelso, United States Army Air Corps. Say to each and every one of you. So long, Mama. I'm off to Yokohama. This Christmas, Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures proudly prepares you for next Christmas. <laughs> Steven Spielberg presents 1941, the night the rising sun fell on Hollywood. Welcome to Reitman for the Job where we cover whatever movies I feel like. This is a quickie bonus episode because I watched Steven Spielberg's 1941 film, 1979. Wait, 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 okay, try again. I watched Steven Spielberg's 1979 film called 1941. Why am I covering 1941? Well, I always knew it for two things. First, it has Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in it, so that's reason enough for us to care about it. Secondly, I had always heard it might be Steven Spielberg's worst film. No questions this week. Let's jump into the news. Here is the news for December 1941. No, no, no. That's a day that'll live in infamy. Let's talk about December of 1979 when this movie came out instead. But oh no, we're still in bad news. On December 3rd of 79, there was a disaster in Cincinnati, Ohio at a Who Rock concert. Their concert was sold out in a coliseum for over 18,000 people. Part of the problem was that most of the tickets didn't assign seating, so thousands of fans were outside before doors opened, trying to get the best seats possible. Then only some of the doors opened, and everybody pushed. Eleven people died, and 26 other people were injured. Everyone on staff decided not to tell the Who about what happened, so they played that night, and they were only told about the accident afterwards. The band, the concert promoter, and the city of Cincinnati settled with the families. Also, if you ever watch the TV show WKRP in Cincinnati, there's an episode about this event. I mentioned this in Meatballs, but on December 6th, Star Trek The Motion Picture debuted at the Smithsonian Institute, and its North American release was the next day. Oh, and here's a movie I really love, Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro, debuts in Japan on December 15th. It's the first movie directed by Hayao Miyazaki, and it's really, really good. Also, it's the best thing in Lupin the Third, so if you're interested in that Japanese character and wonder where to start, this is the best thing. Lupin the Third's creator, nicknamed Monkey Punch, just died recently in 2019. We don't have a specific date for this, but in the Soviet Union, the body of Tsar Nicholas II and some of the Romanov family are discovered. I wrote a history paper on the Romanovs years ago, and the reason I say some of the family were discovered is that when they were executed, soldiers tried to destroy the bodies by dissolving them in acid. It's believed that the mystery surrounding their deaths and not having bodies for years and years was the start of legends about Princess Anastasia surviving. Oh, here's some great news for once. On December 9th in 1979, the World Health Organization announced that smallpox had been eradicated. There are records of smallpox dating back to the BC era, and it was incredibly painful to people's skin. Smallpox killed around 30% of all people who contracted it, and even if you survived, there was a chance of disfigurement and blindness. The smallpox vaccine is the first vaccine ever discovered by Dr. Edward Jenner. It took years for people to accept that vaccines saved lives, and then the World Health Organization stepped up efforts to immunize everyone, especially in the late 1960s. By 1977, they found the last person to contract it in the world, and so in 1979, they announced it eradicated, apart from a few samples in labs. 
You know how some entertainment hosts will talk about how they're going to stay apolitical? Well, you'll never hear me say that. I recommend if you're against vaccinations, you should really learn about the history of smallpox, a virus that had existed for over 2,000 years that killed thousands each year and blinded some survivors, was destroyed thanks to the first vaccination. The world was on track to destroy other viruses like measles, but they're making a comeback due to fear and lies. If you haven't, I would implore you to vaccinate yourself and your kids if you have any. I'm not being melodramatic about this. Vaccinating could save lives in your family, as well as the people you interact with. There, my PSA is over, and if you have any complaints, please email somebody else. Now we'll get into Steven Spielberg's movie, 1941. Here's the history lesson to understand this movie. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, Americans were understandably anxious wondering if and where they would be attacked again. Despite the name of this movie, there actually wasn't another Japanese attack in 1941. It was on February 23rd, 1942, that a Japanese submarine bombarded the Elwood oil field facilities near Santa Barbara, California. The sub actually didn't cause much damage for all the shelling it did, and no Americans were even injured. But of course, a submarine sneaking in and attacking the mainland U.S. got everyone worried. That directly resulted in the Battle of Los Angeles, which I'm doing air quotes around because there really was no battle. On February 25th at 2 a.m., air raid sirens sounded off throughout Los Angeles and there was an imposed blackout, so of course everyone, civilian and military, thought Japanese bombers were flying above the city. At 3 a.m., artillery opened fire at the sky, and searchlights were pointed up trying to spot the bombers. All over Los Angeles, the military was shooting rounds at the sky, and of course it would sound like they were being attacked, because everyone heard the artillery being fired all over. They shot at the sky for around an hour when the all-clear was given, and 1,400 rounds of artillery ammunition had been spent. Of course I prepared you for this next bit. There were no Japanese planes, despite eyewitnesses the next day reporting they saw planes, and some even claiming to see Japanese soldiers in the streets. Fortunately, not a lot of damage was done to the city and nobody was shot, but at least five people died from heart attacks or getting into car accidents during the commotion. It's figured today that the shooting started because of weather balloons, that someone spotted them in the sky and started firing. Remember that a Japanese submarine really did fire on an oil field the night before, so of course they would have been jumpy. Oh, and a side note, if weather balloons and unidentified objects in the sky sound like the start of UFO conspiracies, a lot of UFOologists consider this a cover-up and that it was actually aliens flying above Los Angeles. So that was the Battle of Los Angeles, which actually happened in February of 1942. We're leaving history behind and jumping to 1941, the movie. It's written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the guys behind lots and lots of stuff, including Back to the Future a few years later. You can really tell they're interested in the past and love period movies. Back to the Future really digs into exploring that, but they've also done Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and Forrest Gump is another one that covers decades of American history. Zemeckis and Gale love this kind of stuff, and I bet they learned about the Battle of Los Angeles and decided to make a comedy around it. I'm not going to recount the whole plot like I usually do, but I do want to point out the opening. There's a naked woman going for a swim by herself in the Pacific Ocean, and you briefly hear John Williams score something that resembles the Jaws theme. 
Then a Japanese submarine suddenly surfaces, and the woman is hanging onto the periscope, still naked. It's Spielberg, with help from John Williams, doing a parody of their own work in Jaws. Sure enough, the actress is Susan Backliney, the same woman who goes skinny dipping at the start of Jaws. 1941 is kind of a weird watch, because you get to see Spielberg tackle some ideas and set pieces that he would improve on in his later films. It's his first World War II movie, which he's covered both as fun adventures with the Indiana Jones series, and seriously with Empire of the Sun, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan. There are scenes with the submarine that really remind you of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where Indy just swims over and catches a ride with the Nazi sub. There's that scene at the start with Susan Backliney and the sub, but there's a more direct comparison to be made right at the end of the film where a character catches a ride in the submarine the same way Indiana Jones would a few years later in Raiders. It doesn't make the most sense in either film. By the way, I looked into it and I'm fairly sure the submarine set used in 1941 is not the same one used in Raiders. More connections to Indiana Jones. There's a USO dance scene that looks like it could almost fit in with the Shanghai opening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It even starts classy here too, then devolves into chaos and a big fight. Sometimes it's shot kind of the same, so I'm sure Spielberg got a feel for this sort of thing and then knew what he wanted to do for the Temple of Doom's opening. Oh, and this is more of a minor thing. The movie has some ground scenes with planes where people interact with them, get knocked around by them, and need to avoid parts. This movie really shows Steven Spielberg getting comfortable shooting around planes and having actors interacting with the planes as set pieces, and this prepares him for the much more elaborate fight scene he would do in Raiders Out in the Desert, the one with the big Nazi mechanic. This is all interesting stuff, but let's get to why I'm talking about this movie at all on Reitman for the Job. Here's why. It's sort of Animal House set in World War II. In fact, I'm sure Spielberg must have described it like that around Universal, which, remember, also produced Animal House. One reason you can tell is because of the giant ensemble cast, each with their own little plot. But I figured out this was a World War II animal house immediately when John Belushi shows up. He's a pilot flying a Curtis P-40 Warhawk who lands on a highway and asks the lady at the gas station to fill his tank. Then he just steals cans of soup from the general store inside, the same way he stole food from the cafeteria in Animal House. He's playing Bluto. Just straight up, Belushi is Bluto again. His character is named Kelso, but I can make a case that this is supposed to be Bluto's dad. Just say Bluto didn't get his dad's name, he was born out of wedlock, or was adopted or something. There's lots of supposedly wild cards in this movie, but he's the real wild one, and he's alone for most of the movie and just meant to shine on his own like he did in Animal House. It doesn't end there. Tim Matheson is in this movie, and like Belushi, he might as well be playing Otter's dad. He's absolutely typecast in this after Animal House. His whole shtick is that he's chasing Nancy Allen, you know, Murphy's partner in Robocop, and she only gets excited by planes, so she's willing to have sex with him, but only if they're flying up in a plane. That proves to be pretty difficult if you're also piloting it. Dan Aykroyd and John Candy are in the movie. Dan Aykroyd is doing that thing he does where he talks very fast about technical information. Like, he'll talk about what an anti-aircraft gun can do, and how you operate it with this fast, clipped speech he does. He goes into that mode of voice all the time, I've heard him do it on Saturday Night Live sometimes, but this might be the first time I've heard him do it with a long stream of technical jargon, the way he loves to deliver. John Candy is his subordinate, and it's only too bad that they don't give him much to do. I think he only has a few lines of dialogue and only one gag in the entire movie. Oh yeah, and if you're wondering if the Blues Brothers get together in this movie, Aykroyd and Belushi, they don't. The guys don't share a scene together, though the characters do wave at a distance, and that's really it. Oh, also, I'm guessing this movie put it in Steven Spielberg's mind that Dan Aykroyd works well in period pieces? In Temple of Doom, you're probably familiar with Dan Aykroyd playing an Englishman who arranges for Indy to get on a plane ride out of Shanghai. 
He's definitely not playing the same character as in 1941, but he's delivering information while a plane is ready to take off, so I think Spielberg had filed Dan Aykroyd into a particular spot in the 30s and 40s for his films. Joe Flaherty from SCTV is in 1941 for a brief cameo, and he does a good job. You're going to see him later in life doing some voices in the heavy metal movie produced by Ivan Reitman, one of the Soviet border guards in Stripes, and for Zemeckis and Gale again as the Western Union man in Back to the Future Part 2. Is your name Marty McFly? I've got something for you. That guy. More from Stripes. Warren Oates is in this movie, a.k.a. Sergeant Hulka. You know, I only know him from three movies, In the Heat of the Night, The Wild Bunch, and Stripes. Those are all very great movies. Here he's got a mustache and brown glasses that make him look a bit different. I think I've got it figured out. They're trying to make him look like President Theodore Roosevelt. Just put him in a cavalry uniform instead of a World War II Air Force uniform, and he becomes Teddy Roosevelt. Warren Oates could definitely play him. I'm pretty sure it's intentional. I think it's a way to evoke the adventurous nature of Roosevelt. Consequence and logic of action be damned. So Warren Oates plays a deranged colonel in the middle of the film. You know what it is, he's playing the function of the crazy general in Doctor Strangelove, the one who's afraid of Soviets and fluoride and starts World War III. Here in 1941, Oates' character is afraid of the Japanese and is ready to shoot anyone or anything at a moment's notice. The Battle of Los Angeles in the movie happens because of several accidents coming together, but it's largely responsible because of his and Belushi's paranoia, similar to the general in Strangelove. This isn't connected to Ivan Reitman's films in any way, but I need to mention a few more actors. Slim Pickens is in this movie playing, honestly, he's playing Slim Pickens, and he has only ever played Slim Pickens. He's the cowboy who rides the bomb down in Dr. Strangelove. In fact, if this movie is similar to anything after being a World War II animal house, it's a different sort of Dr. Strangelove brought to you by Steven Spielberg. There's a war going on, and there are military ranks and instructions and serious consequences if they use their weapons the wrong way, but it also shows you how people's personalities can get in the way and how everyone can be so stupid and not understand the whole situation. Apparently Spielberg actually discussed some things about this movie with Stanley Kubrick, and he probably saw some of the similarities to Dr. Strangelove as well. Robert Stack plays the only actual historical figure, General Joseph Stilwell. The reason I really wanted to single him out was because this is a year before Airplane, where he's doing the same sort of thing. People credit Airplane with giving Robert Stack and Leslie Nielsen a chance to parody themselves, these straight-shooting characters who never did anything silly, but here you see Robert Stack playing on that same joke a year before Airplane. Christopher Lee plays a Nazi, and that's ironic, because he arrested and almost certainly killed Nazis during the war. Look into his history, he was an interesting man. And Toshiro Mifune plays the Japanese sub-commander. I have to wonder what Mifune thought of this comedy in here. I mean, obviously he must have been cool with the idea of it, and the Americans in the movie are just as stupid as the Japanese sub-crew, but it's all such a weird idea that I kind of wish I knew what he thought of this movie. This movie also does that thing that the movie The Rocketeer would later do. The Hollywood sign at Griffith Park gets damaged, giving a fictional reason for why it doesn't say Hollywood Land anymore. In reality, it was just in disrepair, and in 1949, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce restored the letters to Hollywood and dropped the land, but here, land gets blown up. Oh, and we'll end where I began, with John Williams' score. The main theme is the closest John Williams has ever composed something to Elmer Bernstein. Their works are most similar here. 1941's main theme, which is good but honestly gets repeated a little too much, begins light with flutes and bounces around, much like Bernstein's great escape theme after you get past the first 20 seconds. Now I say this when what's happening is both Bernstein and Williams were channeling American composer John Philip Sousa, who is honestly a major influence on both of them. 
But that doesn't change the fact that I think 1941 is where Williams most resembles Bernstein to me. The score can be a bit fun at times too, but back to the idea of how influential Animal House was, including Bernstein playing stately music there, in 1941, John Williams is usually conducting heroic music over all the chaos to similar effects. There you have it. 1941 is interesting because A, it shows some ideas that Spielberg and even Gale and Zemeckis would develop more fully in later movies, and B, it's just got a load of people who show up in Ivan Reitman's films. If you look even at just Warren Oates, it's kind of fun to see how he's been in different movies with three of the four Ghostbusters. I think this movie is worth watching once. But is it good? Mm. Well, I'll tell you, it's two hours, and I watched it sped up for stretches. It's been pointed out that this is Spielberg's, who has great comedy in a lot of his movies, but this is probably his only honest-to-goodness comedy. It's got a big budget, because, you know, he's the director of Jaws, but I think he could have done with a bit more practice at smaller-scale budget comedies first. This might have just been too wide in scope, with too many actors that don't all interact. I'll give you an example. Early on, there's a setup where two guys are going to be lookouts at the top of a Ferris wheel, then they're up there for the entire movie until they spot the Japanese submarine at the end of the movie, and the Ferris wheel does the gag where it comes off its axle and rolls away. It's a fine enough gag, not the most hilarious, but the real problem is there's a setup and over an hour of waiting to see the payoff to what is essentially a cartoon gag. Looney Tunes would have done that same Ferris wheel joke in 30 seconds. There are so many actors in the movie with so many stories, so many plates spinning on poles, that there's a lot of setups like that, but the payoffs come too late for you to laugh. John Belushi is the only guy who can really be hilarious in a vacuum. A lot of the other actors don't come off as very funny, but a lot of the action towards the end gets really good. There are some great gags with the crowds rioting in the streets, but you don't laugh at some of the normally very funny actors in the movie. So I find 1941 more interesting than funny. Still, give it a watch if you want to see the germinations of some interesting ideas for Spielberg, Gale, and Zemeckis, plus some familiar actors who we'll be seeing again later. That's all for today. I'm Ross May. You can reach me on Twitter at RossMayWriter, or email me from RossMayWriter.com. I'll talk to you later, but for now, we'd better split up. We can do more damage that way. <laughs>